People of God in Christ, one mistake that we can easily make in understanding our emotions is to think of certain emotions as being opposite of each other and therefore mutually exclusive. For example, can you be happy and sad at the same time? Someone might say, I'm sad right now with good reason to be sad, uh, so happiness is out of reach for me. Or I'm happy right now because I'm in a good time and place, so don't tell me something that would make me sad. The truth is, I believe, we can be happy and sad at the same time, and we do it all the time. Uh, We're sad for one reason, but happy for another all at once. Perhaps the emotion that wins out in our overall mood is which reason we choose to set our minds on. But the better example for our purposes this morning is love and hate. Let's clarify that here we have two emotions that are not just emotions. Love is certainly an emotion, something that we feel, but just as important as feeling, love is acting in love. Even if you don't feel love, you can still love. To put it another way, love is both a noun and a verb. As a noun, it's an emotion that you feel, but as a verb, it's what you do, whether or not you feel love. And hate is the same way, although here it would seem to me that the feeling of hate and the act of hate are less often separated It's because of the emotion of hate that people then act in hate. However, the feeling and the act can be separated and should be separated when we feel hate, but decide not to act on that emotion. And that shows us how love and hate can be experienced at the the same time. Uh, If you are feeling hate, but you decide not to act on that emotion, then you are showing love. But even more, there are times, it would seem to me, when both the feeling of love and the feeling of hate are present in our hearts at the same time. I think it usually happens when, when we've been hurt, uh, hurt quite painfully in our, in our, in our life. And, and usually when the person uh, who has hurt us is someone we also love. We love them. And yet in response to what they have done to us, Hatred can be found in our hearts as well. Such a time is a a time for caution, a time to proceed carefully, giving ourselves the time we need to work through the emotions, lest we be led astray, lest we uh, make a bad situation worse for ourselves and for others. We start this way because the chapter of Genesis before us is all about Esau. This morning, we want to understand Esau, which is to say to understand why squarely in the story uh, or within the story of Jacob, there is a full chapter dedicated to Esau. Hasn't the decision been made by God and, and that even from all eternity to choose Jacob and not Esau? Hasn't the story even moved on from Esau so that we've been hearing the story of Jacob, and the story will continue to be heard beyond this chapter as well, the story of Jacob. But we have these words from the prophet Malachi, 
and uh, made better known to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. And here then is why we, we start by thinking about emotions and about love and, and hate. The point is certainly not to project our emotions upon God, especially as our emotions are affected by sin. The point instead is to remember that we are made in the image of God so that beginning within the being of God himself, love and hate are not opposite. Jacob have I loved, said God through the prophet Malachi, but Esau I have hated, and yet Esau is still important. Esau still receives blessings from God. And Esau, therefore, gives us a picture of the grand scope of God's redemption for sin. By him, that is, by Esau, we see more of the truth that God's plan of salvation would include a Savior who would be Savior of the whole world. The first point, then, is this, remembering Esau. It's not a point that arises from Genesis 36, but is perhaps made necessary by this chapter. At the end of the last chapter, in the closing verse, we, we I think, rather suddenly hear about Esau again. Oh yeah, Esau, uh, we might think. Here he is again, back on the stage of the story of redemption. Genesis 35, verse 29 says, And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. We made the point last time, if you recall, that, uh, uh, that we might find some significance, uh, that the reference is to Esau and Jacob. Uh, while we are more, more used to hearing it, uh, Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the favored one. Uh, he was the one who had uh, covenant status in his relationship to God. And so we usually say Jacob and Esau. But not only that, as, as we've heard, the, uh, the next chapter is all about Esau. So, Let's think about Esau in review and, and, and get a, a renewed running start. Uh, to begin with, remember the birth of Esau. Rebekah, their mother, was pregnant, and she uh, sensed already in her pregnancy that uh, there was conflict within her. And as she inquired of the Lord, God told her that there were twins within her womb, uh, that one would be stronger than the other, and that the older would serve the younger. It was a reversal, uh, a departure from the way it was supposed to be. It was, it was a reversal in two ways. First, by way of natural selection, to use a scientific term, it would make sense that the stronger would be served by the weaker. Second, the older would serve the younger. Esau had the advantage from the standpoint of the world. He was firstborn. And he was physically stronger than his brother Jacob. Even more, as Rebekah gave birth, Jacob was born second, yet holding on to the heel of his brother. 
Uh, it likely was a metaphor, much as, much as we say, uh, don't be pulling my leg. Uh, to grasp the heel meant to deceive someone. That's how Jacob, of course, uh, even got his name, meaning deceiver, although it can also mean supplanter, that is, one who undermines and overthrows another. But since our focus is on Esau here, the point is to see that that there, that there was a sign of his demise even from his birth. And in time, we saw, if you recall, Jacob taking advantage of his brother. The, the fault lay in large part with Jacob, but Esau was foolish, almost beyond compare. He was so hungry, at least that was his drama in the moment, so hungry that he was reckless and he sold his birthright as firstborn, all for a single meal. The book of Hebrews even uses Esau as an example of the recklessness of sin. Hebrews twelve fifteen and 16 says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Next, we see Esau the murderer. Not that he carried it out, but he planned it in his heart and even spoke of his plans to others that he would kill Jacob, his brother. I once heard the statistic that uh, some large majority of people, I don't remember the exact figure, but some significant majority of people have planned a murder. Such is the condition of man's heart and And Esau made plans to kill his brother Jacob after Jacob tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing rather than to Esau, the son whom Isaac favored. But then we saw a different Esau, uh, one who had made peace with what his brother did to him. Perhaps an Esau who had even come to recognize that uh, God is is finally sovereign in what he does. The interesting thing is that we hear more, if you think about it, we hear more about sin in Jacob's household than in Esau's. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, was a thief and stole her father's household goods. And there is evidence of more idolatry when God told Jacob to go up to Bethel. And Jacob figured, well, it might be a good time to collect all the all the false gods that his family members had in their possession. The point is not to say that Esau and his family had had come to worship the Lord, but it seems to say something, does it not? And, And so as Esau came to meet his brother, as Jacob was returning to the promised land, it's it's clear that he was a changed man, no longer hating his brother no longer angry at his brother for stealing the blessing. He was even in tears as he welcomed his brother back to the land of their father, which would now be Jacob's land. It requires a bit of speculation, but I wonder wonder what Esau thought when Jacob deceived him then once again. After their reunion, Jacob told him to go on ahead and, and uh, that he would uh, come along and, and get there by a slower pace. But then Jacob diverted and went and settled apart from Esau. And I can almost imagine that, uh, 
this changed Esau when he realized that Jacob was not coming. He merely smiled and nodded his head, picked up his shepherd's staff, and went back to work. So we come to the second point, now taken from the text itself, the generations of Esau. We won't quote the text and go into detail, but uh, what we find in the first five verses, if we just do an overview of the uh, text, or at least part of the chapter, what we find in the first five verses is a listing of Esau's three wives and the names of the male children of each. Then in verse 9, we hear again the names of Esau's wives and the sons born to Esau by them. And to some degree, I think there's one name in there that would be Esau's grandchild. Also in verses 15 through 19, we are given a list of the chiefs who descended from Esau. And what's interesting here is, is that the chiefs listed include the same names of Esau's sons listed before. So we might ask, what's the significance of listing the sons again, only now as chiefs? The point would seem to be to to make clear that these sons of Esau became powerful men who ruled in the land and who had families of their own. And we might ask, why why are we told this? Isn't this all rather obvious? I mean, mean, we see it in our own day. This is the way it happens. Every once in a while you can even see a, a picture of five generations Uh, a great-great-grandmother, along with a great-grandmother. I have to to think hard about how this goes. Also, the grandmother, the mother, and the mother's child. You ever seen a picture like that? More often, it's it's a picture of four generations. But isn't that how it works? I mean, the significance... Uh, here would seem to be obvious, but the significance is to show the people of God the separation. The descendants of Jacob would also be many, but they would not rule in the land as Esau's sons did. Jacob's descendants would soon go down to Egypt, and only 400 years later would Israel return to the land They would need to know, where did the nations of Canaan come from? They would need to understand that many of them were descended from Esau. And they would need to remember that God had loved Jacob, but he had hated Esau. Another thing to take from this chapter is to see that God's purpose in creation is being fulfilled. Uh, Jacob and Esau's descendants uh, were certainly not the full extent of of mankind at at this time. Uh, God had long ago scattered, you remember, scattered the the, the people uh, across the face of the earth at, at the Tower of Babel. But here we see that mankind continued to fill the earth. The, the, the fall into sin did not disrupt, uh, did not so disrupt God's purpose for mankind Uh, that they did not, after that, uh, continue to be fruitful and multiply. Beyond their control, almost, uh, under the sovereign purposes of God for the whole earth, though sinful, mankind has always continued to fill the earth. And yet, then, as now, mankind is not filling the earth for the glory of God but instead 
for their own glory. And by denying God's power and authority and His honor. Which brings us to see another thing from these verses. uh, That these are the, the fathers of the nations that God hated. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, said God. But it wasn't just Esau that God hated, but his descendants as well, and the nations that came from him. And the reason God hates the nations of the earth is because they have allied themselves with his great enemy. Once again, like God's judgment, we we can understand God's hatred for sin by remembering what sin is. Last Sunday evening, we, we heard the teaching of God's word from 2 Peter Uh, And we noted that the coming judgment for sin is the punishment of Christ himself uh, for how the world has treated his wife, his bride, the church. And so here, why why does God hate the wicked? Psalm 5 even says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates the wicked. And why? Because they are dedicated to his dishonor and to the abuse of his people. If we would fault God for his judgment, then let us fault ourselves. If we are betrayed and dishonored and, and, and do not simply smile and say, that's all right, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. And the matter is the need for God's justice in the wrongs of this world that they would be righted. It's the matter of crimes, the crimes of mankind being requited. It's the matter of the devil ultimately being cast out in order to bring in the fullness of a a kingdom of, of peace and righteousness under the reign of Christ of Christ the King forever and ever. And so a third point, the, the submission of Esau. I think this is worth noting. In, in the middle of these lists of names, the descendants of Esau, we, we hear just a short account of how Esau and his descendants came to be neighbors of Israel and not their roommates, or in this case, not their landmates. Verse 6 and following records, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir, Esau is Edom. First of all, here here we see again an an Esau who was blessed as Jacob was blessed. Uh, He had lost the birthright and the blessing, and yet God had blessed him greatly. It should remind us of, of what God had done for Hagar as she was weeping in the wilderness, cast out by her mistress Sarah, Abraham's wife. God said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, 
Lift up the boy and hold him fast in your hand, for I will make him into a nation. So Ishmael, uh, Abraham's son by Hagar, became the father of another people of the land. But the point is to see the blessings of God flowing even to those who were separated from the covenant people of God. But another connection between Esau and Ishmael is that they were both circumcised. They both had received the sign of the covenant. Seems unlikely that the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Esau continued to uh, circumcise their children. But it seems significant that although each was cast out, as it were, yet God continued to bless them and their descendants at least for a time. But the main point is that Esau left the land willingly. He, he might have stayed and fought against Jacob for the land, uh, but surely by this point he understood that the land would not be his and that to fight against the people of God is to fight against God himself. He knew his brother's sin. He knew that Jacob was not worthy of God's blessing, and yet he saw God continue to bless him. He knew that Isaac was... Uh, uh, or, or that Isaac, his father, had blessed Jacob and not him. And so it would seem that he submitted to the will of God. He gathered his great possessions from the, that he had received from the Lord, along with his many descendants, and he departed, leaving the promised land to his brother Jacob. And along with Esau as a changed man, and along with his willing departure from the land, we also know that Jacob was not chosen because he was the better man, uh, the better son. History records that the descendants of Jacob, too, would, would often neglect the sacrament of circumcision. Again and again, the point is that Jacob was not better somehow than Esau. In some ways, it almost seems that Esau was the better man. And when we compare Esau's descendants with Jacob's descendants, we see great sin in each. And if ever Jacob's descendants were faithful to God, it was because it was the result of God's care for them and his presence with them. So why did God love Jacob? God loved Jacob simply only because he decided to love him. God loved Jacob actively, blessing him when he might have condemned him and put him to death. This is what it means when the psalmist says of God that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Does God grow angry with his people? Yes, but he is slow to anger. Does, does God love his people? Yes, in fact, his love abounds to his people. And God not only loves his people, his love is steadfast so that he is faithful to them, forgiving their sin generation after sinful generation. God simply set his love upon them. He determined to love them. And so he promised to love them, even to the point of sending his son 
not only to provide for the forgiveness of their sin, but also to provide for the obedience that they owed him, but were never able to give him. But why then does John 3.16 say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It can be said of the story of redemption that the story runs from the particular to Pentecost. From the particular to Pentecost, God started with one man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. God set his love upon Abraham and none other at that time on the face of the earth. And if God hates the wicked, and rightly so, then it must be admitted that God hated Abraham. Abraham was a pagan man living in a pagan land. But God chose Abraham, a particular man, and from him God produced a particular people. And God remained faithful to that particular people for many years, even as that particular people kept proving the point that God's blessing must come by grace. That God loved them by just deciding to love them and to keep on loving them. And yet along the way, throughout the story, we we keep hearing these, we might call them whispers. We keep hearing these whispers of something beyond the particular. Esau is something of a whisper. We keep hearing we keep hearing whispers, but the, but the whole thing even begins with a shout. Because when God first started with Abraham, God promised him that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. It was the promise of, of the coming of Christ the Savior. And through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see something of that promise in Lot. Uh, Abraham's nephew, as, as God blessed Lot. We see something of that promise in Ishmael, the, the son of Abraham through Hagar. We see something of that promise through Esau. To put it another way, there, there, there are these certain prefigurations, certain foreshadowings of Pentecost all throughout the story. We don't have time to go into all the things that Jesus himself said to make it clear that the Gentiles, too, would be recipients of God's grace. But the end point for this morning is Pentecost, where Christ poured out his spirit and the disciples began to preach. And when they preached, the spirit gave them not only the gospel message to preach, but also the ability to preach it in the languages of the people who were gathered in Jerusalem that day. And on that day, the nations were gathered. Not every nation yet at that point. For example, I doubt that anyone was there from China. The gospel would yet need to be taken to the nations. And the miraculous gift of tongues would not always be given. The church would need to learn languages and do the hard work of gospel missions. But Pentecost made it clear, clearer than it had ever been prior to that day, clear that God's plan of salvation would save his people out of every nation on the face of the earth. It's what God promised Abraham. 
It's what God foretold and, and prefigured through Esau. That even as God hates the wicked, yet he sets his love on, he decides to love those whom he saves. He decides, I'm going to love them. And when he saves them out of every nation, he does so through the Savior. The Savior he so long had promised. The Savior who has now come. And the Savior who is indeed the Savior of the whole world. Let us pray. What a grace! What a great and gracious God you are. Oh, how we can marvel if we would trace these things out. Oh, how we can marvel at, uh, at uh, how you have worked salvation through the promised one through the Christ, the one who would come and the one who has now come. And we thank you that even this small group of your people is evidence that you are the God who is saving people from every nation, every ethnicity, every people, language, or group on the face of the earth. Oh Lord, what a grand, worldwide, even cosmic salvation uh, you have wrought through Jesus Christ, and we have been caught up in your sovereign plan for the redemption of the nations. O Lord, may we indeed marvel, and may we give you all praise as we come to understand these things a bit more fully with each passing week. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.